Today's readings from Matthew 17, 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon, Christ City. I'm Heath. Uh, It is my joy and pleasure to be here this afternoon. I like that. I've already preached this once already today, so I'll probably mess that up once or twice more. Uh, Yeah, if you are visiting or if you are here for the first time, we as Christ City have been going through this series, uh, The Gospel And, and then you insert whatever poignant issue of the day. Uh, So we've looked at the gospel and hospitality, the gospel and creation care, the gospel and technology, where's Waldo, and the gospel and our work. I thought I'd make the joke before other people do. So our topic today is a little bit like the elephant in the room. Uh, We all see it, it's there, uh, we see it and we interact with it on a daily basis, but we actually don't really want to touch it. Our topic for today is the gospel and spiritual experience. Now, it's not a well-kept secret, but as we know, Vancouver is a very spiritual city, isn't it? Now, whether you're, you know, biking around the seawall in Stanley Park trying to connect to some Mother Earth, or whether you're, you know, looking to have your future read with tarot cards, you know, or whether you're visiting another, you know, temple of faith, Vancouver is a very spiritual city. But increasingly, it is one that is hostile to the claims of Christianity. Now, let me tell you a story of the first time I ever accounted this coming back. Some of you who who have not met me before, my wife and I were missionaries in Greece for eight years in an anarchist neighborhood. So I come back and I'm in the library and I'm like a nerd and I'm in the cooking section and I love food. So if you come next week for the barbecue, I'm the guy cooking and I'm in the cooking section and I've got a stack of books this high and they're all in English. And it's like, I'm, I'm like a kid in a candy shop. I've got, well... I'm all black, and I had a mohawk, and, and this lady, this little old lady comes up to me and says, excuse me, are you new here? I'm like, how can you tell? And, and she, I turn around, and she says, well, where did, did you move here? I said, yeah. She says, where did you move from? And I said, well, I'm like, oh, here we go. I said, I lived in Greece for eight years. She's like, oh, really? I love their yogurt. And uh, I said, yeah, me too. And so we exchanged a few niceties, and she says, well, what do you do? What did you do there? And the standard kind of you know, conversational pathway I usually pick. I said, well, I worked for an NGO and I, um, I did fed refugees and I, you know, did some community development work and oh, that's amazing. She says, would you, would you be considering to come to my uh, enlightenment group and have a discussion with us? And I'm like, absolutely I would. So we get talking and we keep going and I'm having, and by this time I actually have to put my books down because they're so heavy. And I start talking to this lady and the conversation circles back around to I get the question, but what was your role there? And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. I said, well, I was like a pastor. I planted a church. 
Now, have you guys ever read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Have you, have you, who, who's familiar with the story, right? Dr. Jekyll's the, you know, it's this alter personality. You know, Dr. Jekyll's the nice guy. Hyde is this monster. Well, I have never seen a transformation of Jekyll and Hyde before in my life. And here this little old lady comes out, hair, claws, and she attacks. I have had conversations with anarchists in Greece that are hardcore. I've been in places where they're just sketchy and afraid for my, I have never been afraid like I have with this little old lady. The claws run, and she's attacking me. She's calling me a raper and pillager of culture, you know, colonialist pig, you, stuff that I can't even articulate. I'm like, man, I learned new words today. I'm going to have a new swear word here, a new swear word there. This lady, I have totally shredded. And, I, and it takes a lot to make me quiet. And I'm sitting there formulating a response in my brain. And she's, so, got to go. And she starts walking off. So stupidly... I, I said, excuse me, ma'am, do you, would you still like me to speak at your enlightenment group? Yeah. I didn't think the old lady could give me the bird, but she did. Anyway, this, this stupid story, which is real, highlights our issue and topic for today. There is a societal desire and, you know, for an authentic spiritual experience divorced from anything authoritative. This is the common in our culture. Even the words of uh, Sir Paul McCartney of Beatles fame, he said this. He said, I am not religious. I'm very spiritual. The actor Jeremy Irons, he says, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. Religious, you know, kind of seems too much like a club. Neil Young, the grumpy godfather of grunge, he said, I'm not into this judgmental religious right kind of thing. You know, you can almost hear him saying that. Deepak Chopra, he says this. Ultimately, spiritual awareness unfolds when you're flexible, when you're spontaneous, when you're detached, when you're easy on yourself and easy on others. Yeah, essentially unfettered by rules and regulations. And the great Oprah Winfrey says this. It isn't until you come to a spiritual understanding of who you are, not necessarily a religious feeling, but deep down, the spirit within, that you can begin to take control. Now, if Oprah is to be believed, culturally, there seems to be a need to drive a wedge between anything that's authentic spiritually and any talk of authority outside of myself. Our culture finds the absolute claims of authority, particularly around the issue of spirituality, repugnant. So this degrades kind of our choices to essentially like a smorgasbord of spirituality or, you know, the spiritual hamster wheel. The, the issue I don't think really is a problem per se with spiritual experience, but the root of this issue is authority. Now, I have a friend who's not a Christian, and I've had a great dialogue in the past few weeks with her, and she would camp wholeheartedly on the I'm spiritual but not religious thing. And in the dialogue this past week, I asked her, where do you derive your spiritual authority from? And this was her answer. As you know, I have a bit of a funny blend of practice based on many different wisdoms. I suppose I would most likely fit under the pagan category because I, I choose to worship higher powers who resonate with me. They're qualities or essences that feel right for me. But the other day I heard this, another term that I loved, a spiritual independent. So to us, it's not confusing to worse Ganesh, Mary, Isis, Bridget, Jesus, Buddha, Allah, and of Yahweh. 
Of course we would if it fits what we'd like our relationship to the higher power to be. So now before we act superior, before we simply write this off as weak and pathetic thinking, we actually need to feel the weight. We need to wrestle with this backhanded, unspoken criticism that lies directly at the feet of us as Christians. I'll restate my thesis again. There is a societal desire, a bent for authentic spirituality, divorced from anything authoritative. So one must ask why. What is it about authority that raises the hackles of the lady in the library, Mrs. Hyde? Part of the answer has to do with the misuse of authority, either for personal gain or power and control. Now, Mrs. Hyde, I'm sure, could fill pages because she spoke them to me of events and people from all walks of life who have used authority for personal gain and control. Now, this isn't exclusive to Christianity, but our list stems all the way from antiquity, camps a fair bit in the Middle Ages during the Crusades, and ends up here, right here, right now, with our sex scandals and financial scandals. Mrs. Hyde at the library isn't empirically wrong in her criticism of Christianity. It's biased, it's skewed, but not completely inaccurate. Our society, our society desires meaning. A spirituality unhindered by misuse of power, unfettered from legalistic control. Our culture wants to be free from perceived religious atrocities and colonial slavery. Now let's be honest, if we're truthful with ourselves, we see this misuse of power and we find it repugnant as well. This, this is an issue for all of us, not just the people in Vancouver that exist outside these walls. There is a reason why last month an American megachurch pastor is accused of hiring a hitman to kill his son-in-law who happens to be his peer <laughs> and his rival. It's horrifying, absolutely disgusting. Because the misuse of power is gross. So I would put my money on the fact that in Vancouver in 2019, there's a search for authentic spiritual experiences unfettered from anything authoritative. They've looked at the church and empirically found us wanting. It does so because of the phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So is Karl Marx right? Is religion the opiate of the masses used to control and to, and to something to not be trusted? See, our society, Vancouver, it's correct in rejecting authority. But it's not correct in rejecting spiritual authority. So I think as humans, particularly in Vancouver here in 2019, we have to deal with three things. Authority as it pertains to truth. Authority and future hope, and authority and fear. Now, if you're taking notes, those are your three points. This is why our text in Matthew chapter 17 is appropriate for us today. Jesus is interacting with a people living in the context of a hyper-religious, super-fanatical, authoritative society. Think about this. I don't know if you knew, but the Jews in Jesus' time actually, on your day off, they regulated how many steps you could take. So in the middle of first century, you know, Jewish Roman Palestine, in Matthew chapter 17, we encounter a spiritual experience on a mountaintop. And it flips this authoritative structure up on its head. 
So let's set the stage, so to speak, and so we can actually get a better understanding of how this actually fits for us today. So we find ourselves in Matthew 17 on the mountain. Six days after the events, ironically, of chapter 16. So Jesus is confessed by Peter as the Messiah. The promised one. The savior of the world. The one to take away the sins of the world. But also, Peter had this idea that Jesus would actually free the Jewish people from Roman tyranny. So yet, in, and we move down that text, and, and Jesus actually uh, says something that, contrary to societal belief, that he's actually going to go to Jerusalem, be tortured, be killed, and in three days rise from the dead. And then after that, he flips this whole thing on his head and says, by the way, if you follow me, you're going to lose your life, lose your autonomy, but yet you will gain everything. So I'm, sorry, I'm sure some of these guys are like really confused. So then Jesus, to add fun to it, they walk up the mountain, and in chapter 17, we actually get this strange experience. Jesus says, or sorry, the text says that Jesus was transfigured. Now, how many of you are up on your like biblical Greek to know, oh, transfigured? I instantly know what that means. Like, it's a weird word, right? Why would they say that? Well, luckily you can probably figure it out by the context, but the Greek word is metamorpho. It's the, uh, it's where we get our English word metamorphosis. Ironically, it means to be transformed. So Jesus is transformed in front of them. His face is shining like the sun. His clothes are as white as white itself. In other accounts of this particular story, it says that they're so white that, that no bleach can get them any whiter. That kind of white. Jesus is glowing like the sun. Now, how many people you know, have looked at the sun lately? You know, when was the last eclipse? I think last summer, you know, everybody and their dog's uncle's brother-in-law were outside and they were looking up at the sun as this eclipse happened. And you know me, I'm out there and I've got my welding helmet on and I'm looking at this thing. Man, if I looked at that thing without my welding helmet, my eyes would burn. (laughs) And Jesus is glowing like the sun itself. Now we, we aren't told whether Moses and Elijah, you know, are some specters out of a, out of us, like a Stephen King novel, but, but it says that Jesus is talking with them. But we are, they're clearly recognized as authoritative historical figures. You know, and then there's Peter. I love Peter. He sticks his foot in his mouth all the time. I can really relate. So Peter, he's not just content to bask in the awe and the glory of this scenario. So he says, um, excuse me, Jesus. I got this really cool idea. Like we could have a barbecue and we can like set up some tents and we can, we can just extend this experience a little longer. And then the strangest thing happens. As if it couldn't get any weirder. A glowing cloud comes down and eclipses Peter, James, John, Moses, Elijah, and the transfigured glowing Jesus. And out of this cloud comes a voice that says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We're left with the realization that God himself announces to Peter, James, and John that Jesus is his son. And that we are to listen to him. Now, I don't know about you, but I, when I read the Bible, I like to try and kind of imagine myself in different scenarios. And every time I think of this scenario, I think, man, I probably would have wet my pants in fear. Like, can you imagine? They didn't, you know, in this spiritual experience, they didn't, you know, get to a nirvana-like state. They didn't have connectedness to Mother Earth. You know, spiritual, this spiritual experience left them mortified with fear, and they dropped on their faces. They were afraid for their lives. And in verse 7, when they're on their faces, 
quaking in fear, Jesus comes up to him, touches them, and says, do not be afraid. Get up. And when they look up, this declared son of God is standing alone. And they see only Jesus. Now, scholars debate the mechanics of this text. You know, they wonder what the location was, which mountain, its authenticity. You know, was it a real event? But in in verse 9 that we didn't read, uh, it says this. And when they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So this was an actual real encounter, not some sort of cool story to add effect to to the whole narrative of Scripture. It was a real event that these guys experienced. So on this, on the descent from the mountaintop, the disciples are left in the same place that you and I are left at. The same place that the people in Vancouver are left at. They're wondering if I should believe this crazy experience is authentic based solely on the claims of authority. Just like us, they're confronted with the absoluteness of the situation. Do I follow the traditions of my fathers? Is this true for me? Or do I listen and trust the authority of Jesus? They're told to obey, to listen to Jesus. And they're wondering if this is authentic. Can they trust this authority of Jesus, the Son of God? So the three issues that we need to deal with, I'll cycle back. Authority as it pertains to truth, authority in future hope, and authority in fear. So the first thing we need to do is look at truth. The crux of the issue, really, is that we as humans reject authority because we don't trust that it's true. The same, is, the same is the case with the disciples in our text, particularly Peter. As I alluded to early, if you look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 to 23, you've got Peter just declaring Jesus as the Messiah. But as I stated, he's, he's thinking about you know, physical power, control, elimination of Romans. So when, so when we get to 21, we read this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, Peter didn't really understand the full implications of the fulfillment of the Messiah. Peter had a truncated or a reduced view of what Jesus was supposed to accomplish. Peter didn't believe that Jesus actually had to die. This highlights one really important fact, that the arbiter of truth, our internal instincts, can be horribly wrong. Think about it. If Peter was wrong and he met Jesus, how could our our truth, our internal truth, be accurate? Peter's example highlights that we are in really deep trouble here. Instead of seeking meaning within ourselves, we should ask, be asking, can I trust myself? This text illuminates that we actually need something outside of ourselves to save us. I am not a generator of truth. I'm a recipient of truth. Ask my wife, I am not a generator of truth. I'm a recipient of truth. Our text today shows us that Jesus can be trusted as truthful because he's more than just a moral teacher or a localized savior. Why is that? You see, in the transformed, transfigured Jesus, we actually get a glimpse, and we see Jesus from the inside out. We, we preview him. It's like foreshadowing in a good story. We preview him in all his glory that he will be after his resurrection. Notice in the text that he didn't reflect any light, but rather he was the source of the light. 
Jesus was the generator of truth rather than a recipient. It's exactly the opposite of what we are. Jesus is more than just a moral teacher because his wisdom is sourced from something outside of himself, from God himself. So in order to appreciate the force of what Matthew is actually trying to say in this text, we actually need to go back and we need to look at another mountaintop experience. Because it would be easy for us to miss this 2,000 years later. But Matthew puts this story directly in contrast with another mountain story. If you have your Bibles, or just look back there, we'll turn to Exodus chapter 24, verses 15 to 18. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on the Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, notice any similarities there? Hmm. This isn't by accident. Matthew actually is directly relating back to this story that was known in all of Jewish culture. Turn with me, you know, flip a few pages over to Exodus 34. We'll see what happens when Moses comes down off the mountain. Exodus 34, 29 and 30. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of testimony, revealed truth, Ten Commandments, with the with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. It actually says further on in Exodus that, that Moses actually had to use a veil to cover his face because he freaked everybody out. Matthew knew the readers of this, of his writing, would understand the comparison, the tale of two mountains. On one hand, you have the authoritative figure, Moses, seen as the recipient of God's revealed truth and glory, face shining because he's in proximity to God. The other mountain, we have Peter, James, and John, recipients of glory, and we have Jesus glowing. Jesus' face is shining because it's intrinsically who he is, not something he has received. Jesus is superior to Moses, the giver of the law. And he can be trusted as superior because he is the fulfillment of the law. But don't take my word for it. At the end of his life, contending with these same authoritative issues, he says, Peter says, in 2 Peter 1, 16-20, he says, Speaking directly about this event, he said, We do not follow cleverly devised myths. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We find ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well pay attention as a light shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from somebody's own interpretation. Peter recognized his error. Peter surrendered his autonomy and trusted the revealed truth of Jesus. Peter proclaims the true authority is in solely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Brings us to our next point. 
authority, and future hope. So why, and just a question, something I've pondered for a while, why is it we as society, with our kind of construct of evolutionary biological understanding of life, why do we still seek spiritual experiences? You ever wondered that? Why does my friend, who has degrees from Caltech in molecular biology and molecular chemistry, why does she practice Reiki? I think she's smarter than that. Why have we not applied scientific methods, you know, of observation, measurement, experimentation, formulation? Why have we not done that with our spirituality? Why have we not admitted that spiritual experience is neither repeatable, measurable, unless you're on a lot of drugs? Why have we not ruled this out as a waste of evolutionary time? What purpose does it serve? Why do we, why do we as a society read Harari's book, his seminal work on evolutionary biology called Sapiens, and believe that it's true, and at the same time, take a class on tarot reading so you can understand the future? Don't laugh, it's a real thing at my collaborative workspace. It's like, whoa. See, humans have a fundamental need for personal meaning. And this directly pertains to future hope. People reject authoritative structures because they feel as though it limits or constrains their personal hope. You can use another word called freedom. Why do people fight for freedom? Now, I'm, I'm gray, I'm old, and I remember we just had the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen Square. And I remember on my crazy little, I think it was color TV at the time, I remember in awe watching the tank guy. I'm, I'm old enough, I guess, not young enough. I'm old enough to remember when the Berlin Wall came down. I saw on my same old television set the collapse of the Soviet Empire. I lived eight years in Greece in an anarchist neighborhood who fought against the authoritative structures of the Troika because they thought they were being abused by the government. My, I have friends who were throwing rocks and Molotov cocktails at the police officers because they saw their future hope was being limited and restricted. People reject authority in the same way in a spiritual experience for exactly the same reasons. They see it as a, a barrier to personal freedom. Now, we've just presented Jesus on the mountaintop as superior to moral teachers, the generator of truth, the author of truth. We're going to build on and see that Jesus actually is superior to all forms of spiritual experience because he is the fulfillment of hope itself. And therefore, he is an authority that can be trusted. So it's not by accident that when we read in, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 3, it says that, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking. Now, we've articulated already about Moses, you know, the giver of the law. And the original readers of this would understand that Moses was a symbolic, uh, kind of a loaded metaphor. He was the vessel, the repository of the law, truth. The same is true for Elijah. His figure acts in, a, in the same way. He was the repository of the prophetic words of God to the people of Israel. But he was also a symbol. He was also a symbol of fulfillment of the promised Messiah. So when, when Matthew uses the two of these together, he is saying, look, Jesus was transfigured, not Moses. And the voice of God speaks to Jesus, not Elijah. Matthew is, is writing to tell us 
that in Jesus alone, he is the consummation of the law and the fulfillment of the prophets, the promised Messiah. The writer of Hebrews takes this into account, and he's probably thinking of this event, and he says this, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to us, God spoke to our fathers, rather, by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification of sins, this is messianic fulfillment here. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become much more superior to the angels as his name is inherited and more excellent than theirs. For which of the angels did God say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus is both superior to and the fulfillment of all other forms of spirituality because he is our future hope. In him, through him, we are fulfilled. In him and through him, we have value and meaning. In him and through him, we actually have freedom. So what does that even mean? (laughs) You could be saying there like, okay, dude, you assert way too much into this text. How is Jesus superior to the worship of Ganesh, Mary, Isis, Bridget, Allah, or Buddha, as my friend says? Well, let's look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Now, now therefore, I love those therefores, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of of Christ be reconciled to God. Now this is the key right here. For our sake he be, he made him who know no sin to be sin so that he may become the righteousness of God. Mary, Buddha, Allah can't give me the righteousness of God. Jesus is superior. And the fulfillment because he is our future hope based on Jesus' merit, not ours. I can actually have an authentic spiritual experience because Jesus has reconciled God to me through his work on the cross. Because I'm a new creation, as this text says, based entirely on the superiority and authority of Jesus. That's why I can say Jesus is my future hope. So, I can say that Jesus is truth, I can also assert that Jesus is our future hope, all for one reason and one reason only. Because God declares Jesus as son. Only in this understanding, as Jesus of son son of God, does truth and hope be personified and is trusted. That's why we must address our last issue, authority and fear. Now, my anti-authoritarian Molotov cocktail-throwing neighborhood in which I lived in Greece. Graffitied absolutely everywhere was this slogan, no God, no master. So how can I stand here and assert to you 
that Jesus is son of God and he's to be trusted and to be hoped in. I can't tell you how many times I've been told to put that statement somewhere unpleasant. How do I have the confidence? How do I have the bravado to continue to say that here in Vancouver? Because the issue is the same. I think here we're just a little more passive-aggressive on how they respond back. But it's the same issue. How can I say that hope, that truth, that meaning is found only in Jesus Christ, Son of God? The answer is in this little thing we call fear. Now, some time ago, I was listening to a podcast by Jordan B. Peterson. Please don't tell my left-wing anarchist friends that. Now, the, the podcast was in this series called The Psychological Significance of the Biblical Stories. Now, it was completely fascinating. Most of it, I kind of like, whatever. But there was one little nugget in there of truth that blew my mind. It was profound. Now, he observed that one of the key differences between us and our primate cousins, his language, not mine, he noted that we have an internal understanding of how we can be hurt. Physically, emotionally, psychologically. But out of that clarity made us something unique as humans is that with that understanding of hurt we can therefore know how to hurt others said another way we know where we're vulnerable and therefore we know how to exploit others vulnerability for our gain this nugget of horrifying truth helps us understand the primary reason why we are unwilling to submit to anything authoritative We don't trust. We don't dare to hope because we're afraid we're going to be vulnerable and exploited by others. How many times we can all stick our hands up when we've been, we've had that happen to us. I know. And to our shame, anecdotally, history proves this statement to be accurate. So how can I stand up here and tell you that Jesus is hope when there's a rap sheet a mile long of atrocities seemingly committed in Jesus name? How can I do that? How dare I do that? What gives me the confidence to put my big boy pants on and say, Jesus is hope and Jesus is truth. And you need to surrender. Yeah. The answer is how Jesus deals with divine power and exercises his glorious authority. Jesus understands our weakness and he became weakness for us. Jesus knows our pain. Instead of exploiting it, he was tortured and beaten for us. Jesus was beaten for the exploiter. This was the purpose of the Messiah. This is what Peter initially missed. To exercise power and authority through weakness by dying for the one who doesn't deserve it. And thus saving the world. Listen to the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in the same accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How can Paul assert this? Well, verse six. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Before God was highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. We can be free, you people, us. We can be free and not be afraid because Jesus is Lord, the Son of God. On the mountaintop, Jesus reaches down and personally takes away my fear. Because he's the only one who doesn't misuse his power and authority. We can trust his truthfulness. We can place our hope in him because in weakness he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. He died the death that our fear and rejection of authority deserves so that we can actually have a life and a hope that we don't deserve. When my anarchist friends noticed this, that blew their minds. They had never seen anybody explain Jesus in that way. See, I have the ability to stand before you despite our collective track record because I've surrendered my personal autonomy to Jesus who is revealed on the mountaintop. I've connected my desire for authentic spiritual experience to the one who has authority to actually save me, Jesus, Son of God. Ironically, only in surrender to Jesus Will our culture actually find what it's really looking for? So we have a couple of options here. We can be like Peter, and we can kind of kind of try and generate spiritual experience. We can be, you know, really cool and still, you know, maybe understand, have seen Jesus and get him. And, you know, but we try to extend these spiritual experiences. You know, we can build, you know, metaphorical tents in our life and do so in our own merit and in our own authority. Or... We can continue on keeping on, more or less rejecting authority. We continue living in our own autonomy, devoid of authority. Now, these two options are actually the opposite ends of the same error. Both cases, our autonomy has not been surrendered, and we're still on the spiritual hamster wheel, going around and around and around, going nowhere. Or we can surrender like Peter did can surrender our authority, our desire for truth, our hope for the future. We can surrender the most vulnerable bits of our fear to the one who is worthy. We can be united to the one who is the subject and the object of authentic authentic spiritual experience. Jesus Christ, Son of God, is the one who became religion so that we can be spiritual. Would you please stand? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.